Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Taping this on August 21st, 2022, the 24th day of Av, 5782, hot summer day here in Israel. I am really honored to have once again, because for those of you who pay attention, interview, I interview this lady as often as I can. Dr. Jody Magnus, archaeologist, the Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, involved in so many things. Hopefully we'll, we'll get to touch on all of them, or at least some of them, and putting out books. And I have to say that one of the, um, the, one of the bitter secrets of archaeology, I don't know if it's bitter secrets of archaeology, one of the frustrations that a lot of people have with archaeologists is that they love to dig and they don't love to publish. So they can dig and dig and dig and dig, and then their stuff just sits there. Sometimes they die and their students stop to publish it. That is not the case with Jody Magnus. She is a prolific, puts out her work prolifically, gets her students involved. It's really, and I mention this specifically because she's very unique in the field, I have to say. I wish there were more uh, people like her. So Jody, thank you so much for joining me. Well, here. thank you. Thanks for having me. So, um, okay, two years of Corona, you couldn't get here. It must have been insanely frustrating for you. <laughs> Fill my listeners in on what you are up to now. Right. Yeah. No, actually, you know, like everybody else during Corona, I was, you were, it was like, uh, you know, musical chairs. You were stuck where you were when the music stopped. And right. <laughs> we were all so like, true. stuck in place. So I was here in North Carolina, where I am right now, um, for the, those, you know, two years. And we weren't able to dig. I wasn't able to get to Israel. Uh, and, uh, but it was, I mean, so like everybody else, you know, in academia, I was teaching remotely by Zoom. Um, pretty zoomed out at this point. And, um, <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I really, honestly, I know that so many people had, had difficulties and terrible struggles, um, you know, on various fronts during Corona. And I, I honestly feel blessed that I, I didn't have those kinds of struggles. I was gainfully employed. Um, I was able to sit at home. I have a great library at home, which I built up over my career. I was able to sit here at home and and write and um, actually get a lot of work done. And and I live in a beautiful, beautiful place in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and, you know, could go out and walk around the neighborhood here. It's a beautiful wooded area. And so, you know, overall, I mean, of course, you know, there were a lot of downsides to the to the pandemic years, but Overall, I, I really uh, can't complain. And I feel like I was able to make the most of it and get a lot done. And so I feel, I really feel blessed because I've heard, you know, I know that so yeah. many people. Okay. But once the pandemic was over, you were on a plane. So tell us what happened here. In yes, Israel that's in true, actually. Months. Even, even, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, so, and, and here too, the timing worked out very well. So, um, so last year, so just to make it clear to your listeners who are many of whom probably you're in Israel, the academic year in Israel starts after the high holidays. So it starts in October. Right. Here in the American South, at least at public universities, the uh, the academic year starts very early. So I've already had one year, one week of classes. <laughs> no. <laughs> started on August 15th. That's why my listeners were taping this on Sunday because I usually try and take my shows on Monday or Tuesday. So they come out you know, right after. Yeah. And Jody was like, no, I'm teaching all day Monday. I'm, I'm back, I'm back in class, class, right? Yeah, exactly. Last year, last academic year, I I was on sabbatical. And that was also lined up long before the pandemic. I mean, these things are planned out years in advance. And I had applied for outside funding and so on. 
And so things worked out very fortunately for me because if I had been on sabbatical a year earlier, I couldn't have done what I did because nobody could go anywhere. But um, it worked out really well. And I spent the fall semester last year uh, on a fellowship at the Institute for Research in the Humanities at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which was just glorious. I I had, it was just wonderful in every single way. And my husband's actually from Madison and and is is an alum, uh, but there's no connection. And I had never, and his family's still there, but I had never spent any time in Madison before. And it's just wonderful. I had, I just had the best time and it was productive and it was great. And I fell in love with medicine. And anyway, so that was in the fall. And then um, in January, I went to Israel and I had two fellowships. I had a, a residential fellowship at the Albright Institute in Jerusalem. And I had a Fulbright at Tel Aviv University through the um, Jewish studies there. And so I was able to continue. It was all, ver- you know, well-planned out. And so mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to continue working on my project. And then I just, you know, basically my fellowships ended in the latter part of May and then our dig started. Perfect. So we so were finally able to have another season of excavation after a two-year hiatus uh, at Hukok and um, had an absolutely fantastic group of students join us, uh, students from the U.S. and Canada, and um, just had a great season. So, you know, yeah, it, it was overall everything, you know, was just great. Right. And you weren't in Wisconsin in January and February, which is also an added. Well, you know, everybody and even my husband says that. But, you know, okay, so fair enough. But, you know, I love ice skating. And um, one of the things I did when I was back in medicine was I picked up ice skating again, which I hadn't done in a while because I live in North Carolina. But uh, but I, I'm kind of bummed, actually, that I wasn't there during le- like, you know, January, February, when the right. lakes freeze over and you can go skating outdoors because right. I'm skating in the rink, but not outdoors. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, whatever. Okay. but I grew All up right. in Miami, just to be clear, I grew up in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it sounds like you just take advantage of wherever you are. You just throw yourself into wherever the climate is, whatever the environment is, both academically and outdoors. And really make the most of your time wherever you are, which is really, that's a great attitude and really a great blessing yeah. to, to be like oh. that. Amazing. No, I'm fortunate that I've been in some wonderful places too, really. Yeah. 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 So tell us about Hukok. First of all, for my listeners who don't know, where is it exactly? <laughs> and, and like, why did you land there? Right. So um, Hukok spelled in English H-U-Q-O-Q. And we have a big website, which is hukok.org. Um, is uh, an ancient Jewish village in Lower Eastern Galilee, uh, very close to the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, a couple of miles inland from there. So just a couple of miles from Capernaum, Farnahum, a couple of miles from Migdal, um, just a little bit inland there. And uh, it was a village that was actually inhabited for, for millennia, not necessarily continuously, but for many millennia, right up until 1948, but my interest in it is in the Roman and Byzantine periods when it was a Jewish village and that part of Galilee was Jewish in the Roman and Byzantine periods. Um, and I started the excavations in 2011 because of um, because I, I had two big research questions that I was hoping to answer. And one of them has to do with the fate of these Jewish settlements when they come under uh, Christian rule, when the Roman mm-hmm. empire becomes Christian empire Many of my colleagues think the Christian rule was oppressive to the Jews and that these settlements declined and some of them maybe even disappeared. And my impression from the archaeology was always exactly the opposite. And I wanted to test the case with uh, an unexcavated village. So that was one reason I started the dig. Um, And 
as a spoiler, uh, our, at least Hukok, I can say, did flourish uh, under mm-hmm. Christian in the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. And then the other reason was because I wanted to excavate uh, a previously unexcavated Galilean type synagogue, which means a synagogue of the type represented by, by Capernaum, Kfarnahum, one of these big synagogues, Chorazin, another example, Kfarbaram. It's a particular type of synagogue building. Um, it's traditionally been dated, those types of buildings have traditionally been dated to the second and third centuries CE based on stylistic right. considerations. And I think that they, they're later in date. I think if you look at the archaeological material associated with their construction, they should be dated to the fourth to sixth centuries, which again means they're constructed when Jews were living under Christian rule. So, mm-hmm. um, so we were, you know, there had been indications before I started my dig that there was a synagogue of this type at Hukok, but it had never been excavated. We weren't even sure that there was a synagogue for that matter. Um, and we started the excavations with the hope of finding a synagogue like that there and excavating it. And we were very lucky in our very first try, the very first season to come down on the east wall of the synagogue building. And we've been following it ever since. And it turns out to be an amazing Galilean type synagogue that a little (laughs) different from the typical, yeah, a little different from the typical ones. uh, Instead of having a flagstone floor inside is paved with mosaics. And not just mosaics, but mosaics that are divided into panels, most of which uh, depict different biblical stories. And so we've been bringing that to light over the years. Most of the mosaics that we've uncovered are published. And again, if people go to our website, whocoke.org, they can find the publications in both English and in Hebrew, pictures, media coverage. Um, And so that's what that's what we've been doing there. And, you know, we've at this point, we've uncovered most of the synagogue we have really next year we'll we'll finish it up the the last of, of what's not excavated in the synagogue building um so most of it's done at this point so okay a couple of questions oh, oh, um can i say yeah. one more thing sure for especially for your listeners who are in israel or who may be going to israel don't run mm-hmm. up to hukok no. do not <laughs> do not go to hukok because there's nothing to see there uh because the it's not open to the public the sites you know it's not it's it's not open to the public the it's all everything is deeply backfilled there's nothing to see and there's a huge and i mean huge fence around the site you can't get in don't try mm-hmm. it's not worth it you can go up you'll see there's a huge fence you can't get in and if you got in there's nothing to see don't go Look at the publications. Um, the land that the site is on belongs to the Karen Kayemet. And the Karen Kayemet, in cooperation with the Israel Antiquities Authority, is planning to develop the site for tourism after we finish our excavation. So after next year, when we'll be done with the synagogue, they are planning to develop the site. I'm sure it will take some time for that to happen. But anyway, so that's just a little thing so right. people don't start running up. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually super frustrated this summer because you did have a viewing. There was a day that you had invited well, people. It, you invited me, and I couldn't yeah. get there because we were moving. And oh, I was like, yeah, oh. it wasn't. It wasn't exactly a viewing. What what we do is um, we don't. And when we're in the field, the site also is not open to the public. By the way, right. so don't you know? Even when we're there digging, people should not stop by. If you stop by, we won't let you in. Period. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, right. randomly. Um, but we do have a, uh, a day or two during the season when we when we um, when we invite professionals to visit, meaning um, other you know professional archaeologists and academics and members of um, the you know other government bodies that are interested in the site. 
you know, it's a, it's not like, oh, we're opening the site and everybody can come. So don't do that either, please. Right. Um, but anyway, <laughs> yes, because, uh, you know, you, you've been in touch with me over the years. And, and so yes. I included you in that invitation. But yeah. But I didn't get to go. But I will get yeah. there at some point with permission. Yeah. Actually, but a, a few a few questions, because when you, you raised some interesting points that, that my listeners, both Jewish and Christian, I think would be very interested in, which is there. I took a course this year with uh, Avner Ecker who's also yeah. very involved in Galilee and synagogues. And there seems to be a major, I don't know if it's an argument, but a difference of opinion among archeologists, exactly when synagogues, as we know them, come to be. And I mean, for those, I, I imagine a lot of my Jewish listeners know that the Talmud, for example, the, the oral law that is written in the absence after the temple is destroyed and a lot of whatever, a lot of, there's a lot of hullabaloo, shall we say, in the Jewish world. And a lot of these things are written down that it's redacted in the Galilee. I mean, we, we know we have these, right. you know, these rabbis arguing over centuries, essentially. Um, and that, so, so when you say that, that there's a theory that you disagreed with, that once Christianity starts, 324, whatever it is, the Byzantine Empire here in the land of Israel, that they kind of push down Judaism. But we know from Jewish sources that there is vibrant life in the Galilee because we know where they were sitting when they wrote down the Talmud. So why would, why would people say that as if, you know, the Jews weren't thriving in the Galilee when we know from those other sources that they were. Oh, okay. So, hmm. wow. You, you raised a lot of issues that are very complex yes. and intertwined. Um, well, you're so, the person so to answer make, them. Yeah. So let me make clear. So first of all, with regard to the, to the Palestinian or Jerusalem Talmud, right? right. So one of the arguments of, of, of advocates of the earlier date, which I am not an advocate of, right? But one of their right. arguments is that in fact, we, that that one piece of evidence that Jewish settlement declined beginning in the first half of the fourth century is because, precisely because the Palestinian or Jerusalem Talmud was never completed at around that time. In other words, the editing, it was never, the editing of it was never completed. It was mm -hmm. abandoned sometime, you know, by the middle of the fourth century. And so they point to that among other pieces of evidence as evidence that Jewish settlement must have declined and precisely in Galilee, especially at around this time. That's actually one of the okay. pieces of evidence that they cite, right? Um, but I, I think that there's another issue here, and that is the, the sort of automatic, I think you may have made an automatic connection between rabbis and synagogues. And that, of course, is a is a connection that most people logically make today. But that is not the case in 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 antiquity. Um, rabbis, you know, of course, today rabbis tend to be, you know, people who go through a formal process of ordination, mm -hmm. and um, and then often, not always, end up, you know, heading up a synagogue congregation. And that's not what the ancient rabbis were. The ancient rabbis were men, sorry, they were all men, men who were um, learned in the Torah, right? They were, they were experts in the in study yeah. and interpretation mm -hmm. of the Torah, right? Um, who were consulted on um, an informal basis, really, by people who wanted advice about how to correctly observe the law. And, um, and so the term rabbi in antiquity is not given through a process of ordination. It's a um, informal title of respect that people use to address these men who were considered experts in the law. So there, you know, there's a debate about like in some of the gospels, Jesus is titled a rabbi. You know, in that sense of the word, Jesus was a rabbi. Now, rabbis often are associated with Pharisees or sort of the right. successors of the Pharisees. And 
I don't think Jesus was a Pharisee in any way. Rabbis weren't Pharisees, never mind. It's because they shared a similar approach to the interpretation of law using the oral mm-hmm. law. But, um, but if, you, if you think of rabbi as designating somebody like that, who's, who's uh, respected by members of the public as an expert in the interpretation of the law and is consulted by them, in that sense, Jesus does actually fit the bill of being titled a rabbi. In other words, in that sense, you could call Jesus a rabbi. So mm-hmm. my point here is that the term rabbi in antiquity denoted something different from what it, yeah, it, it does today. today. And, and therefore, um, rabbis were not automatically leaders of synagogues in antiquity. They, they is not saying they weren't involved with synagogues or they couldn't mm-hmm. be leaders of synagogues, but they weren't necessarily leaders of synagogues. In fact, we have uh, a large number of, of inscriptions associated with ancient synagogues in the land of Israel and the diaspora that refer to heads of synagogues. And they're not, they're not, the title is not rabbi. Usually the title is the Greek word archisynagogos, which simply means the leader of the synagogue in Greek. Um, we even have a very famous first century inscription from Jerusalem, the Theodotus inscription, which is yes. on display in the Israel Museum, where we have a synagogue building that existed somewhere in Jerusalem, apparently to the south of the Temple Mount in the first century, that was dedicated by a man named Theodotus, son of Etnos, who is titled Archisynagogos, and he's the son of an Archisynagogos and the grandson of an Archisynagogos. So, um, so in other words, there, there's no automatic, you made this leap, right? Again, mm-hmm. when there is that leap is not. So in other words, so the value of rabbinic literature is not that the rabbis were the ones leading these ancient synagogues necessarily, and certainly in many cases they were not, um, but rather that, that rabbinic literature provides background on what's going on in Judaism in that period. But it is limited in the sense that it's giving us the worldview and perspective and opinions of a relatively small group of men who were these relatively, relative to the general population, at least, you know, educated, you know, scholars, mostly elite, because, you know, to be able to spend time studying, devoting your life to study, you had to have some means. Um, And so so it's giving us a, a window, but a particular window and not a complete window. And what I like to say about when we discover these synagogues in archaeology, you know, it's it's giving us a different lens onto Jewish life in that period that uh, and and a perspective that we don't necessarily get from rabbinic literature. Mm-hmm. And isn't there an idea that what we would talk, what we would consider a synagogue? And I'd like you to expand on how you decide that a building is a synagogue. I know it sounds like a supposed question, but it really isn't. Isn't there yeah. an idea that some of the earlier ones, the second or third century ones, wouldn't even have been synagogues in the sense of a place to pray, but they might have been like study halls? or what we call date me drush. Is that also oh, an idea? Okay, well, wow. Okay, so now a whole, you've raised a whole bunch of other things. So so now I let me go back to, who? Uh, okay, let me go back to the beginning of, so one of the debates among scholars is the origins of the synagogue. When and where did, syna- did, the, did, did synagogues first arise? Where can we pinpoint, right? What are the mm-hmm. earliest synagogues? And there's no consensus among scholars about this. Now, part of the problem in, de- in defining where and when synagogues began to develop is the definition of the word. Because the word, you know, in, in, in English, synagogue comes from the Greek synagogos, which means to gather together in, or assemble mm-hmm. together in Greek. And in Hebrew, Beit Knesset, right, house of assembly. But the, the term synagogue actually has two meanings. It means 
a congregation, but it can also come to mean a building that houses the congregation. So a synagogue originally is an assembly or congregation of Jews. And so Jews gathering together, right? Assembling together. Mm -hmm. And at some point, Jews begin to build purpose-built buildings to house those assemblies. So when we say the term synagogue, it doesn't necessarily mean a building. It can mean a congregation, just like the term church, by the way, originally could mean both a building, but it could also mean the congregation. And therefore, um, that means that the earliest synagogues would not have left identifiable traces in the archaeological record because it's just Jews gathering together. And by the way, even today, a synagogue assembly can be held in different kinds of buildings. Even in church buildings, you can have synagogue assemblies. You don't need a purpose-built building to house a synagogue assembly. Uh, During Corona, people were praying out in someone's backyard. And that was exactly, that's right. That's exactly right. So, so, so the, so, so archaeologically, it's pretty much impossible to identify the earliest synagogue the early when synagogues first began, because that depends then on how you define the purpose of the original synagogue assemblies. And there, if you define a synagogue assembly as a synagogue as an assembly of Jews, mainly for the for the purpose of this, the um, the reading and the study of the law, the Torah, um, then again, you can put it in very, very I mean, People have. I mean, people put it in. I mean, some some scholars argue that it's before 586 BCE, before the destruction of Solomon's temple. Some argue that the institution arose during the Babylonian exile. Some argue that it it starts when Ezra gathers together the exiles in Jerusalem to read the law to them. And some argue as late as the Hasmonean period. Now we know that by the Hasmonean period, synagogues existed because we have literary references to synagogues by then, right? In Josephus and other sources, New Testament. But, but um, how much farther back the institution goes is, is debated. And as far as archeological evidence goes, there's, um, there are inscriptions from Hellenistic Egypt, uh, third century, second century BCE Egypt, um, which are inscriptions dedicated by Jews. And, and they're inscriptions where the Jews dedicate something called a pros euche, that's a Greek word, pros euche, which means a prayer house um, in honor of the Ptolemaic rulers, right? Mm-hmm. These are, so these are dedicatory inscriptions. So they're associated with buildings. And many scholars argue that these, that, that this pros euche, which is a term that in later sources actually comes to be used as a kind of equivalent for synagogue, that these actually were synagogues. And if that's the case, then we have synagogue, there would have been synagogues in third mm-hmm. and second century BCE Hellenistic Egypt. That I, I personally am not convinced that that is the case. Um, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, right. And then, you know, in Israel, where are earliest synagogue buildings? Well, you know, again, it depends on who you ask. But I think that everybody would agree that that the one at Masada, the building mm-hmm. at Gamla, um, and Migdal, we now have, for example, Herodium. There's one at Herodium that those are, in fact, early synagogues, which date, in the case of Gamla, goes back to the late first century BCE, and then the others are first century CE. And if you look at them, what's interesting is that, again, I think pretty much everybody agrees those are synagogues, but they don't have any of the features that you would associate with a synagogue. You wouldn't, they don't, they're not oriented. There's no direction of prayer towards Jerusalem. There's no tor- set place for the Torah shrine. There's no inscriptions, you know, Jew- dedicatory inscriptions. There's no um, Jewish iconography, right? There's no Jewish symbols de- uh, decorating mm-hmm. them. So how do we identify them as synagogues? Well, hmm, okay, so because they are buildings that have benches in them. 
Rosa benches. Right. And the rows of benches indicate that they were used for assembly. So they were assembly halls. But all of them, so Masada, Herodium, Gamla, Migdal, they're all in what were entirely Jewish contexts at the time they were built, meaning the population of who used those, we know, were all Jewish. So by definition, they're Jewish assembly halls. If we found that same building in a different context that had a mixed population or a non-Jewish population, we would not be able to identify it as a synagogue. Or a Samaritan so, synagogue, just to make it a little even more confusing. Well, Samaritans right? are yeah. a little later, but yeah. Right. But what I mean yeah. is, for example, if we found it in a place like Caesarea, where we have a mixture of Jews and, 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 and pagans in the first century, or in a completely pagan context like Corinth or Athens in the first century, it could have been a Jewish synagogue, but you wouldn't be able to say it was mm-hmm. because the population of those places was not entirely Jewish. In other words, the only reason we can, can identify those buildings as synagogues is because the populations that used them Jewish. at that time were Jewish. And therefore, by definition, they are Jewish houses of assembly or assembly mm-hmm. halls. And therefore, by definition, they are synagogues. Gotcha. Now, notice that they're all that they're very simply assembly halls, and that doesn't tell us anything about when, what went on in them. Now, the original purpose of the synagogue, it's still the core of the synagogue service today, is the reading and the study of the law, the Torah reading, right? The Torah portion mm-hmm. is still the heart of a synagogue service today. And that's because in antiquity, synagogues, especially originally, were never intended to replace the temple in Jerusalem. You went to the temple in, Jeris- in, the temple in Jerusalem in order to participate in the sacrifices offered there. But synagogues were different. Synagogues were places where people gathered together to have the law read and explained to them because most people couldn't read and understand the law on their own. And in order to live a Jewish life, you needed to observe the laws of the God of Israel. And so that is actually originally how synagogues get started. People gathering together mainly on Sabbath and the festivals, Shabbat and the festivals, when they're not working, and they're having these laws read and explained to them. And again, that's still the heart of the synagogue service today. They're not gathering together for the purposes of worship. Worship, you go to the temple in Jerusalem and you offer sacrifices. So it's only later over the course of time, after the destruction of the temple, over the course of centuries, then you begin to get the development of a sort of a prayer service that right. greets around the Torah reading, which is what you have today, right? So that's the result of a development over the course of time. And synagogue buildings reflect that. So eventually, by the time you get to the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries, you get buildings constructed that reflect the fact that you have also liturgy going on, meaning that you have a kind of a prayer service, you get these big buildings. Um, with fancy decoration, with a Torah shrine, you know, mm-hmm. all the stuff that we see, right, that helps us identify them as synagogues, right? And oriented, oriented towards Jerusalem. Oriented towards Jerusalem, right? Yep, exactly so. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how do you identify, you, is that how you, you identify Pukok? Because of its orientation? Well, okay, so let me just say one more thing about that. And, and so... Uh, uh, you mentioned the Beit Midrash. So we know, Bate Midrash, by the way, the, the house of study, um, as far as I know, you sh- was associated more with the rabbis, right? Not mm-hmm. sort of the pu- a public institution. And we have, in my opinion, we have no physical remains of an actual Beit Midrash. We have an inscription, but we don't have an actual Beit Midrash that we can identify. Um, and I, I don't know why. Um, now, I'm not saying they didn't exist, but it may be that, again, it's it has to do with the fact that second to thirds in my, so 
Okay, let me back up a minute. I think that, in again, sort of differing with many of my colleagues, that monumental synagogue buildings like Hukok, like Capernaum, like, you know, these big monumental synagogue buildings, that they developed mainly in the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think there were synagogues in the second and third century. Second and third centuries are crucial because that's the time of the Mishnah and the Talmud, right? I mean, right. so... I, it's not that I don't think that there were synagogue that there were no synagogues in the second and third centuries. What I think is that in the second and third centuries, synagogues pretty much were like what had been before seventy, which is relatively modest buildings mm-hmm. that are very that are difficult to identify in the archaeological record, and that it's only with the fourth century on that you begin to get more these more monumentalized buildings decorated with these artistic programs that make them easier to identify. So, so the Beit Midrash question might be connected partly with this because really, if we were looking for Bate Midrash, we'd be looking for them in the second and third centuries when also it's very hard to identify synagogue buildings. So it may be that Bate Midrash were simply modest structures or maybe not right. even purpose-built structures, right? We don't know, right? It could be that it was simply a room that was used for other purposes that was sometimes used for the purposes of a Beit Midrash. So, but we don't have any, we don't have, in my opinion, identifiable physical remains of a building that mm-hmm. we can identify, in my opinion, right? There, there are people who say that there are, that they exist, but I, again, I, I, it's speculative. And so I don't right. see definite evidence. Okay. So, um, so the synagogue at, at Hukok. So, okay. So, um, our, our synagogue dates to around the year 400 CE, so late 4th, early 5th century. We have really good dating evidence. We have pottery and coins from the foundation trench of the building. We have radiocarbon dates of, of um, samples taken from the bedding of the mosaics. We have, we have pretty good evidence at this point for nailing down a late 4th, early 5th century date. Um, so, so how do we know it's a synagogue? Well, I mean, it's a huge building that has... Hebrew dedicated, all of our inscriptions are in Hebrew, by the way. So we okay. have a large That's number of Hebrew point. inscriptions, dedicatory inscriptions, including one that refers to um, that refers to the mitzvot. So I, I hardly see how you could identify it as, as anything but a synagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's certainly not a church. Hello. Um, but right. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, anyway, um, uh, but but what's interesting is that Hukok was a village. I mean, it, clearly it was a larger and more prosperous village than we had previously supposed, but it was a village. In Galilee, in the Roman and Byzantine periods, so in the period I'm talking about, in, in the context of a Jewish village, if you have any public building at all, by public building, I mean a building that all the community got together and pooled their resources to pay for and, and that they used the building for community purposes. If you have a community building right? A communal build like this in a, in a village context, a public building in a, in a village context, in a Jewish village in late Roman Byzantine Galilee. By definition, the only kind of public building you're going to find is a synagogue. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because unlike urban center cities like Tiberias or Sepphoris or whatever, Caesarea, where you have Lots of different kinds of public buildings, theaters and bathhouses and, you know, right, temples right. and whatever. Right. Unlike that, in a village context, you don't have any other kind of public building except for a synagogue. Or mm-hmm. if it's a Christian village, by the way, a church. 
Um, so in, in, in a Jewish village context like ours, when you find a public building, and our building clearly is a public building, it's not a private dwelling, it's not right. a house, right? And it's not a palace. It's a synagogue. I mean, even before, so, and we knew it was a Jewish village anyway. We knew Hukok was a Jewish village because we have references to it in rabbinic literature of rabbis associated with Hukok. Um, we have, have Mikvaot. You do have We have Mikvaot, not associated with the synagogue, but we have Mikvaot mm -hmm. in the village. We have um, stone vessels that we have found. So clearly it was a Jewish village and we have a public building. And I will say one more thing and characteristic of this period is that, uh, is that whereas urban centers like, like Capernaum, like, uh, sorry, not Capernaum, where, like, whereas in urban centers like Sepphoris or, or Caesarea or Tiberius, you had uh, mixed populations. So in cities, you had mixed populations, pagans, Jews, Christians, right? All different kinds of people, Samaritans, whatever, right? Villages were segregated. They didn't have mixed populations. Villages were either Jewish or they were Christian or mm -hmm. they were Samaritan, but they were not mixed. And in fact, not only that, but the country was segregated. Eastern Galilee was right. Jewish. Western Galilee was Christian. The Golan was segregated. Mm -hmm. The southern part of the country was segregated. Jews lived in the Daroma along the southern fringe right. of Judea. So the population was segregated. So we're in a Jewish village of this period, and we have a public building. So even without all the stuff in it, we would know that it has to be a synagogue. It couldn't mm -hmm. be anything else. And every single village, by the way, apparently had their own synagogue. You know, Horvat Kor across the hill from us has a synagogue. Wadi Hamam, Kfar Nahum, Chorazin, Migda, every single town and village had their own synagogue, right? And by the way, the only exception to the rule about the having the two different kinds of public buildings, mm -hmm. because that means if you're in a village context, you either find a synagogue or a church, but you don't find both. Right. And the one, the one exception to that rule is, is Capernaum, uh, where yep. I think that you have the octagonal church built on that spot because of the importance of that of that location to Christian right. pilgrimage. Right. But I do, I personally think but that his mother that was, yes. I think it was, yeah, I think it was a Jewish village or town actually, but anyway, or a large village, mm -hmm. but, um, but anyway, so yeah, that's how, so even without all the other stuff, we, we can tell that it, we know that it was a synagogue. It has to, it can't be anything else now. And by the way, you know, it's, it's what, one of the things that's really weird to me is that until we discovered our synagogue with, at Hukok, which is very similar to other synagogues in plan. I mean, it's practically identical to Kfar Nahum, for example. Very practically identical, almost the same size, just a little bit smaller. Um, it's, it's very, very similar to Wadi Hammam, which is just a few miles south of us. And again, you know, you have these, these this is this very typical type of Galilean type synagogue. Um, Wadi Hammam, like ours, is different that it has a mosaic floor although theirs is preserved only in small patches, but, but very similar to ours. But until we discovered our synagogue with, with the imagery in the mosaics, right? Because that's the thing that nobody ever said, hmm, right. is Capernaum a synagogue? Is Horazin a synagogue? Is Wadi Hammam a synagogue? Nobody ever asked about those. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever questioned that those are synagogues. So why are they questioning that Hukok is a synagogue? Only because they didn't expect to see the images that are in our mosaics. Right. That's so now it. explain but there's nothing why. else that right. There's right. nothing. It's 
it's so so that's weird to me right mm-hmm. that that we're actually the same as everybody else, actually. But more so. Well, but we have so. a lot preserved. I mean, you know, if, if the Wadi Hammam mosaics were preserved, then people, I mean, what we do have, of what we have and what they have that's preserved is very similar. It's just that they have very little preserved. So it's not as mm-hmm. striking there. Yeah. So what, I'm talking about the images, and I'm assuming that my listeners are either now already on your site or going to go into your site or familiar right, yeah. already. Some phenomenal um, images out, like bi- essentially biblical, well, except for the Hasmonean, which is a biblical, but, you know, biblical images, elephants and, and Samson. And so there's this prohibition, apparently, right, against these images in synagogues. We just read about that. Well, right, there, the Ten there, isn't a, there is not a prohibition. Ah. That's exactly the point. There is no prohibition. So first of all, uh, we've, I mean, Hukok may have better preserved, you know, a better preserved decorative program than many other synagogues. But we've known that ancient synagogues of this period were decorated with these kinds of figural programs for, oh, well over a hundred years now um, because these synagogues have been coming to light. I mean, if you take a look around, you can see Hamat Tiberius or Beit Alpha was, you know, excavated in what, 1926, for example. Right. Um, and, right. you know, right. I mean, we have, they're, they're, you know, and, and then we have synagogues with carved stone reliefs that decorate them. Mm-hmm. You know, again, Capernaum mm-hmm. has some of those. So this is not new. I mean, knowing that that Jews in this period decorated their synagogues with figured art is not a new discovery. This is an old thing. This well, there's is, some synagogues with a zodiac wheel and with hell. Yeah, we also have a zodiac. There are ten synagogues in Israel that have zodiacs now. I mean, mm-hmm. well, one is in writing. That's the Engedi synagogue. But I mean, we have ten ten examples of the heliozodiac cycle, right? So this is not a new discovery, right? It's just that we have a, a, a much richer program, um, decorative program preserved. Um, and, and by the way, another old discovery was the Dora Europa Synagogue, right? Which is what, 1934 or something, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, 32, 34 in Syria, um, where the walls are covered with, you know, uh, paintings Beautiful. that depict biblical stories. And so again, this is not a new discovery, right? It's just that, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of people weren't thinking about it, but it's that's not new. And there is no prohibition. There's no prohibition. I mean, there is a prohibition against making figures for the purposes of worship. And so there were many periods in history, right? There are many periods in history where Jews apparently interpreted that as meaning that you shouldn't make any figured art at all or whatever, Mm -hmm. where we have very little figured art in, you know, in a Jewish context. But in late antiquity, that's not the case. In late antiquity, Jews apparently did not interpret the, the commandment in that way and felt comfortable decorating even synagogues with mm-hmm. figured art. So again, this is not new and there's no ban. And by the way, there's nothing in rabbinic literature that explicitly prohibits this either. Uh, all of There's a couple of passages that tired old passages that people cite all you know over and over again uh relating to you know rabbinic you know what the rabbis say and you know you shouldn't prostrate yourself and mm-hmm, right. stuff like that and none there again there's almost there's only a couple they get cited over and over but they neither of them says anything about they don't say anything about synagogues mm-hmm. it doesn't say you can't decorate your synagogues in this way or you shouldn't do this in a synagogue and there, there's no reference to synagogues in those now could people yeah, have so understood that is relating you, to synagogues? Do you mm-hmm. have those same decorations in churches from the same time period? 
Well, that, that's exactly the very interesting thing. So one of the things that, that I think is going on, at least when we're looking at synagogues in the land of Israel. So again, Doria Ropus is a different right. context, and we have to consider that, I think, a little differently in terms of what's going on locally there. Um, but at least in the, in the context of the land of Israel, um, uh, I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing is, is in relation to the rise and spread of Christianity, because mm-hmm. of course, Christians... Uh, were only allowed to start worshiping only, openly and building monumental halls to accommodate their congregations, uh, beginning with Constantine in the early fourth century. And they decorated their buildings with a, a program that proclaims their message. Their message is that the New Testament supersedes the Old right. Testament. So they're looking at, you know, biblical passages from the Hebrew Bible as sort of, they're, they're, they're basically appropriating um, those passages, mm-hmm. you know, for their purposes, for their message. And their message is, is not that the Jerusalem temple needs to be rebuilt and the sacrificial cult reinstituted, but that no, no, Jesus has superseded that. And Jesus is the sacrifice. We no longer need an earthly temple. And they're decorating their buildings with decor- with, with figure programs, a lot of them taken from biblical stories that broadcast their message. And I think it's in conjunction with this that we see Jews beginning to decorate their pretty much doing really the same thing, except with the Jewish message. And I think that the Jewish message is pretty much temple oriented. I think most of the iconography, not all of it, but a lot of the iconography that you see in synagogues is is temple oriented, right? It's focused on the temple. Incense pans. The past temple, the future temple, right? This is the the message of Judaism, right? And that, Mm -hmm. so, and and using biblical stories to broadcast a Jewish message, right? And not Mm -hmm. the Christian message. And right. I think we see that also at Hukok. Was there something that surprised you when you found it? Like one mosaic yep. in particular? All that just surprised every, yeah. every year is a surprise. Every year is a surprise. <laughs> I mean, the elephant mosaic, which you referred to, has gotten the most attention um, because it's, an, it's apparently a non-biblical story. And I think it's not. And most, most, most of us agree it's a non-biblical story. There are, there are scholars who disagree, but... Um, and if and assuming that it is, then it's the first non-biblical story ever discovered decorating an ancient synagogue. Period. Mm-hmm. So, which but the question is, which story is it? But it's that's the one that's right. gotten a lot of attention. But they're all every every time. We never know what to expect, so it's always a surprise. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing. I mean, uh, yeah, everybody should really look up because I want to just say we just have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to, you to comment a little bit on some of your publications, which are not really about the cook. The books you put out about Masada, the books you put out about Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've got an upcoming book, I believe it's your editor right now, about Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. what is your, like, what ties it all in together, that the scope of your interests? Oh, hmm. that's an interesting question. Um, well, I mean, basically, when people ask me what I specialize in, I say I specialize in the archaeology of, I'll put it in Jewish terms for your listeners, the land of Israel, right? Ancient right. Palestine. Um, in the Roman, Byzantine, and early Islamic periods. So basically mm-hmm. first century to, let's say, maybe ninth, 10th centuries CE, right? That's, that's right. been my focus. That millennia, right. That's right. exactly. And then within that, I have a number of different, you know, research interests that I've developed over the years. So I started out as basically a pottery specialist, right? My, my <laughs> dissertation was on 
the late Roman and Byzantine pottery of Jerusalem. If anybody ever needs to like put themselves to sleep at night, it's 900 pages of pottery <laughs> typology. Very soon after that, that would be too long for the podcast, but I got involved in um, the archaeology of Qumran. So Qumran and the mm-hmm. Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, also, very early in my career, I got involved in Masada, the publication of some of the material from Yadin's excavations at Masada, and that kind of then developed another. And and my dissertation again had to do with Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem has all you know in different periods has always been one of the focal points of my interests. And and then I have other you know subspecialties. This whole thing with synagogues, right, which started to develop in uh, sort of the 1990s, and I've been working on it. Yeah, ever since right. then. So, you know, these kind of things, but they're all, you know, I, my dissertation also led into a whole uh, exploration of the Byzantine to early Islamic transition. You know, what kind of a transition was it? Was the Muslim conquest accompanied by a wave of violent destructions and a decline in settlement, or was it mm-hmm. a peaceful transition? Um, what ha- What is the picture? I was interested in that, worked on that a lot earlier on in my career, mostly. So I've had a number of these different focal points, but all within that kind of broad range. And I've had a, d- dabbled a little bit in diaspora stuff. Um, I looked at the Sardis synagogue, for example, and you know I've had some interest in, in things outside of the land of Israel. I once published an article on the Etruscans, believe it or not. But anyway, oh, so yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the Etruscans. Most people yeah, look at me and say yeah. Etruscans. <laughs> I happen to think that the Romans stole a lot of what the Etruscans developed and like took it for themselves, but yeah. that's an entire discussion. <laughs> And then if you wipe out all the Etruscans, there's nobody left to say, no, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so um, it, I mean, anyway, that's kind of, yeah. So you said you're wrapping up Hukok within like the year or so. Any, yeah. what's, you got your eye on something else? Can you tell us? No, actually. Well, yeah. So, um, you know, my original plan at Hukok was to dig for five years. <laughs> oh, that, <laughs> that was 11 been, years ago. Now we, yeah. yeah, now we just finished our 10th season. Uh, and so the plan is to finish up the the synagogue, which is what we were. The, it, I mean, I could people say, well, can't you continue? Well, yeah, I could continue there indefinitely. I mean, stuff goes on. We have buildings all around it. It's really interesting. There's we I mean, you could just continue there indefinitely. I can't continue indefinitely. I mean, mm-hmm. and this is what you started off by saying, and I really appreciate that, which is that. You know, one of the things that people have to understand about archaeology is that the goal of archaeology is not excavation, it's publication. And uh, the, the reason is, is archaeologists were scientists who use excavated material to hopefully help answer our research questions. So the goal is not to excavate. That's how you retrieve the data. But the goal ultimately is to publish the excavated material. And as I say, we've now had 10 seasons of excavation. We'll have another one at Hukok. And then it's time to work on publication. And um, as you mentioned, a lot of times archaeologists never end up publishing their material mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. It's not as fun. It's not as glamorous. It's um, it's a it's a very long and difficult process because it involves lots of different specialists and you know, you have to corral them all and get them to contribute their sections. And it, it takes a really long time to get a, a final excavation report published. It takes a really long time, years, years and years. I mean, some people manage to do it, uh, you know, not as not as long and drawn out as that, which I always right. admire. But I'm not anticipating that I will be able to do it quickly. We have it's too much. It's too complex. And so uh, this is going to take years. So the, the bottom line is, no, I don't have another project lined up. That would be. Um, frankly, from a professional point of view, that would be irresponsible, 
irresponsible of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, what I need to do after we finish next year is to focus on the final publication, getting the final report out. Um, that doesn't mean I won't be, you know, working on other things and involved right. in other things, but I won't be directing another field project. Um, I will be working on getting this one um, out into, you know, out to scholars and the public. Mm-hmm. And I know that a big thing for you is, of course, teaching, teaching the next generation, yeah. getting them excited. Well, yeah, about exactly. And I have, I still, yeah, and I still do have a full-time job. Right, exactly. <laughs> All of that, which is why we have those scheduling difficulties, Right. Right, dissertations to oversee and all of that. Well, yeah, yeah actually, that, uh, that, that, yeah, but actually, most of my teaching here is undergraduate teaching. Uh-huh. Yeah. Most, okay. of my, most, most of my teaching at UNC is undergraduate. So right. both of my courses this semester are undergraduate courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Must be amazing. I know I've, I've just actually spoken to some of your students, and they, you are as vibrant and dynamic in the classroom as you have been on this podcast. And <laughs> well, that's what we you. want from our teachers, to excite us, to inspire us about the subject at hand. And you say like someone could go to sleep reading your dissertation, but the fact is that we have learned so much about the ancient world from your work in particular, and you of course with all your colleagues and putting together so many different things. And I imagine it's only getting more complicated with some of the science that we have now that we didn't have before. Like now when you fight seeds, they used to be able to do nothing with 30 years ago. That's a whole realm in and of itself. Yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly that's right. That, that That's exactly right, which is one of the great things is that as time goes on, we're able to retrieve more and more information out of the remains that we dig up. Um, and so, yes, I have a whole, I mean, people who go who, who go to the website will see we have, you know, a huge staff of, of specialists, right, who are working on those because, you know, I'm the director, but I, I can't do, I don't do paleobotany and I don't do right. archaeozoology. And I mean, I don't do coins and, you know, uh, we have specialists mm-hmm. who do all of that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But ultimately, um, you know, the goal of the final report will be to get the reports, right? The chapters from right. all of those specialists on those categories of material um, and make them accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really a multidisciplinary uh, field. Yes. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, Jody Magnus, I will let you go now and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And I take definitely want to have you back. You always have so much to teach and so much to excite. And uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you for everything that you do. Hopefully next time you come to Israel, I'll get to see you as well. Yep. Okay, everyone. Okay, All right, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Professor Jody Magnus, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thanks to Ben and Tabitha for putting the show out. Thank you to my listeners for your feedback and for your interest and for your excitement. It keeps me going. So take care, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, and goodbye for now. You're listening to the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com, broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world. 